welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 133. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tara and Jack. Now today we do have another Q&A lined up for you. So we are going to start off with this first question. This is a good one, Jack. We've actually never been asked this question before. This one says, why do we always talk about mini cuts, but never mini bulks? Interesting one. So I think it mainly comes down to the rate of ability to put on muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's very different to the rate at which you can achieve fat loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically our guidelines for building muscle or gaining weight is around 1% of your body weight per month. And that is a general guideline. Mm -hmm. And I have people who are gaining more than that. I have people who are gaining less. And it really comes down to the ability that you are able to put on muscle. So if someone is naturally very experienced and they've accomplished a lot of their, or let's say they're close to their genetic or natural potential, then obviously their rate of gain will be a bit slower compared to someone who is completely new to the gym. I have a, I have a few clients myself who are in the later teenage age bracket, like 18, 19, 17, and I have them gaining quite a lot of weight per week and they're able to do that very and execute that very well and still maintain a very good body comp because they're able to mainly put on muscle, which is very cool. Yeah, taking full advantage of that newbie Mm. gains period. But the cool thing is, is that it's not necessarily just when you've first walked into a gym or, you know, this period doesn't happen just because you are in a gym environment. Mm. It's obviously dictated by the way that you are training over time. So even you and I, I'd say even today, we are experienced trainees. We've been training for many, many years now. But even we're still experiencing newbie gains in some of our muscle groups. Mm. Yeah, certainly, especially my back. And I that's something that is a bit of a misconception is that you can only get newbie gains once you start at the gym. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong. It's It's not like you walk through those doors and then like a timer starts clicking down. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've had a lot of clients who are fairly experienced trainees and I know you have too, but you make everything more proficient. So you look at their training. You, are they training with enough intensity? Are they using the correct exercises? Are they executing them correctly? Is their nutrition on point? And then you maximize all those variables and then lo and behold, they get newbie gains again. Yeah, without a doubt. And it is very exciting. And it's also very reassuring and encouraging too, so that people know that, hey, not all hope is lost. Just because you have been exercising in the gym for the past few years, you are still fully capable of really getting some great results in a relatively shorter time period now because you are really just maximizing every single variable when it comes to training. And that's the beauty that you and I can be honest about that too, that obviously it's experienced with our clients, but we're experiencing that with ourselves as well, just as we become more advanced trainees. Like I know that my quads and my triceps are developing very quickly at this point in time because I'm putting a large emphasis on how I train them exact same goes for your back. Mm, Certainly. So to get back to the question, the reason why we don't have mini bulks is because muscle gain is relatively speaking quite slow Mm -hmm. or a lot slower than fat loss. Therefore, if we had a mini bulk, let's say a mini cut is four to six weeks, 
a mini bulk four to six weeks, you wouldn't build a tangible amount of muscle in that period. You wouldn't notice anything. Unfortunately not. You'd have a really good time at the all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, with all the hope you can get. And you probably well, that's get assuming some... you have a fast rate of gain, but I think you're assuming that they're having a very quick rate of gain. Well, I think if someone is bulking, then I feel like when people use the word bulk, they usually associate that with pretty rapid weight gain. Mm-hmm. But... Absolutely. We need to take into account that building new skeletal tissue, that is a very energy intensive process by the body. And there certainly is a cap to how quickly you can do that naturally and not using any special magic potions. But the thing is, the guidelines are to gain between 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per month when you are in a controlled gaining phase. But then when you are trying to lose weight, you can go 0.5 to 1.5% of your body weight per week because it is much easier and more efficient for the body to actually use energy stores from adipose tissue compared to actually trying to build new skeletal tissue. And that's that, that's the thing. We're trying to positively change body compositions here. And when you, when you say positively change someone's body composition, generally that is associated with building more muscle mass and having less body fat, or at least having a healthy amount of body fat. But sure, someone could go on a mini bulk and they could hit up the all you can eat buffet and go wild, probably have a pretty good time. You know, you'd probably get some pretty sick pumps in the gym because you'd just be full of croissants and you would gain weight, but you cannot guarantee that a lot of that would be muscle mass, particularly if you're not resistance training. Yeah, assuming they are resistance training. And I completely agree. So moral of the story is mini bulks probably aren't your most efficient use of time. Mm -hmm. And we recommend a rate of gain around 1% of your body weight per month. And I probably wouldn't have anyone bulking for less than six months. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's very, you're not really going to see any tangible results otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to change your body composition generally the best way to do that is to change your body composition and that usually correlates with actual a change in tissue Mm. and a change on the scale of course all right so now moving on to this next question this one says does fat need to be at least total percent of your calories or a percentage of your weight there's a different a few different answers to this question so basically a lot of people think about macronutrients in terms of percentages And a lot of people get these percentages from all over the internet. But Mm. there are actually some percentages which are used from a chronic disease prevention standpoint or just used by dietitians. It's what we got taught at uni. It's called the Acceptable Macronutrient Distribution Range, also known as the AMDR. And for essentially for carbohydrates, this is 45 to 65% of your total daily energy intake. For protein, it's 15 to 25%. And for dietary fat, it's 20 to 35%. So if we actually calculate this, I think most of the time it will fall within, if your intake is around what the generic amount is for a male or female, like let's say between 2000 to 2500, mm-hmm. like that's typically what is recommended for fairly sedentary males and females. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to the previous question, let's say you're not doing an extreme mini cut and you're mm. not doing an extreme mini bulk. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. And so the, those ranges aren't typical for people who are bodybuilders mm. or changing their body composition purely because those people are usually eating a bit more food. Mm. And 
if you do try and factor in those equations into someone like me and you, like fat is going to be a lot higher, protein is going to be a lot lower. And carbohydrates, to be fair, if you use the upper end of the range, will probably be about the same. Yeah. So I personally don't use them. And I know you don't really either. We tend to go off grams per kilo for, for, for protein and fat. Yeah, it's quite interesting as well. Sometimes I think people assume that I'm like a mathematician or maybe my fitness pal just assumes people like us are mathematicians because when I'm doing dietary recalls with people and if people have experience tracking on my fitness pal, I'll ask them, you know, like, what are you currently hitting on average for your macros? And there are different sections on my fitness pal where you can actually just see total macros for the day, but you can also see percentages mm. and then they'll tell me the percentages and I'm like, whoa, I can't work this out in my head, man. Like 43% of your 1,923 calorie diet of mm. carbohydrates. I, well, I can't do that off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. It's, but I don't I, like using calories on my fitness pal anyway. Yeah. Me neither. Macros all the way. Absolutely. But I think Certainly those are under healthy eating guidelines and the same could be said for the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Remember guys, these are guidelines and they're big ranges, you know, 45 to 65% of your total energy intake from carbohydrates, 20 to 35% for fats, 15 to 25% for protein. Those are pretty wide ranges, but for the average person, again, it does kind of fall within sports nutrition guidelines. So let's say that you had someone on 2000 calories per day, given those ranges for protein, that would equate to between 75 to 125 grams of protein for carbohydrates. That would be 225 to 325 grams of carbohydrates for fats. That would be 44 to 78 grams of fat. Yes, I did do that on a calculator, not off the top of my head. But let's say you had a 60 kilogram female, correct? That would fall pretty much within the ranges of what I'd probably prescribe if I was going off grams per kilogram of body weight. Because mm. she's going up toward the higher end at 25% of her energy intake coming from protein. Two grams per kilogram of body weight of protein, that's 120 grams. 25% of that is... 125 grams per day. So that's pretty good. If she was going toward the lower end for fat, 44 grams per day, that's pretty good based on her kilogram of body weight. And then for carbohydrates, anywhere between 225 to 325 grams per day, that's a decent amount of carbs too. But it's going to be a completely different story if you have someone who is much heavier on a lower amount of food, particularly from a protein standpoint. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. And I think it just comes back to those guidelines, like for the average Joe who's focusing on lifestyle change, this actually links quite nicely to our most recent post on Instagram, which is all about tracking macros. And like, it doesn't really matter whether they could choose 15% of protein, 25% protein, and it wouldn't really matter. Mm. But I think for people that we work with, we typically are, for those that are tracking macros, uh, we do have clients who don't track macros, and they are looking for that little bit of extra individuality. Can you pronounce that word for me? Individuality. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So, And that's why we are coaches, we are dietitians, and we help them with the the cherry on top. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you're trying to work out someone's macros on a 
post-it note, kind of like Broderick Chavez mm-hmm. always says on his podcast, protein, go for around two grams per kilogram of body weight. For dietary fats, go around one gram per kilogram of body weight. And then based on their total energy requirements for their goals, fill in the gaps with carbohydrates. So that's that's pretty simple. But you know, there obviously are ranges within that. Like they say that protein can be anywhere between 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Fats, if you're getting really aggressive with your diet and you're trying to obviously bias energy intake coming from protein and carbohydrates, fats can probably go down closer to that 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight, but only for a very acute time period. If you're in a surplus and you're finding it really difficult to actually get enough energy in, you could put fats up closer to 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. So there's obviously those ranges, but I'd say just try to narrow it down, try to just be consistent. But I certainly think it's a lot more tailored to the individual when you actually go off their own body composition, their own athletic goals and endeavors, and you actually take that into account rather than just going off some sort of percentage base. Because (laughs) believe it or not, the RDI, so recommended daily intake for protein for someone to just stay alive and be healthy is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein. That is, that just baffles me. But they've obviously debunked that in a lot of resistance training studies saying that that is not optimal for muscle gain. No, That'll keep not. you alive, but that's not going to get you jacked. Mm. You keep your kidneys safe. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the kidneys, man. <laughs> all right. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> mm, I'm sure it does. And this next question is about a calorie deficit. And the question asker is inquiring about hitting daily calorie targets at the expense of protein. So let's say someone is on 2000 calories for the day and they've it's midday, they've already gone over in carbs and fats, but they're under in protein. Should they remain under in protein at the expense of still hitting daily calories or should they go over in protein uh, in order to hit their daily protein target? I would honestly advocate for the latter. Mm -hmm. I would actually recommend that someone at least hits that bottom end of the threshold at that 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein if they do find themselves in this conundrum where they are exceeding their calorie targets with carbohydrates and fats. Just because protein, it does have the highest thermic effect of food compared to any other macronutrient. Like 30% of the calories you consume from protein will actually be used in just digestion, absorption, metabolizing that protein. So there goes a third of those calories already anyway. But boy, oh boy, like anything to back up and support muscle growth and recovery and just keep working toward your goals. So obviously finding yourself in this situation, it's not optimal, but I'd say it would be worth going over your calories a little bit. It wouldn't wouldn't even be that much mm. at all. Like we're talking maybe max, what, 100, 200 calories worth from just protein, not the end of the world. Yeah, well, it depends how much they've gone over by, how much protein they'd have to sacrifice. But That's true. I would, I, I'm on the same line as you. I Let's say the reality is most of our clients who are dieting, we don't have them on 1.6. We have them on more like 2.5, I would say. Mm. So they could just bring their protein down for the day to 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight, mm. hit that, and then that would bring them as close as they can get to their total daily energy intake for weight loss. And... 
Yeah, I guess the the very short answer, the the two second answer is don't go over your macros. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But sometimes you know things happen, right? You go out to a wedding, you eat a lot of cake. Who yeah. who knows? But things aren't always uh, super duper high in protein. But when they are, try to take advantage of that. But mm. at the end of the day, we're splitting hairs here. If it's one day where you don't yeah. meet your protein intake, wake up and tomorrow it, and start again. Yeah. And if it's not one day, you've got bigger bigger issues at present as to you probably shouldn't be dieting if you're not being consistent enough to yield the mm-hmm. results you're after. Yeah. And this is actually a question I get a lot when I first start working with someone and they might come from a background where they're actually just not used to consuming a lot of protein and perhaps they actually are finding it difficult to just meet their protein targets of maybe around two grams per kilogram of body weight if we maybe have them in a dieting phase and they are resistance training but they're struggling to hit that and they're like i don't know i don't know how to get more protein in when you take a look at their food diary on my fitness pal the easiest strategy to get more protein in is just to increase the portion size of your protein mm. serving. So you don't necessarily have to add in more snacks and add in more meals during the day. If you're having 100 grams of chicken at lunch, up that to 150 or 200 grams. If you're having 25 grams of protein powder in the morning in your oats, up that to 40 or 45 grams. Increase your portion size of your yogurt or your cottage cheese. Just have a larger serving size of protein rather than just adding a bunch more stuff in at other points of the day because protein is pretty dense, man. Like mm, it is, oh, and especially it, if it's a low fat, yeah, low m- carbohydrate meat. Option. And then even sometimes I question, I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Cause have you ever had people who are there like, I just can't bear to eat any more chicken. It's too much chicken. And I'm like, chicken is so pathetically and sadly dense in protein you have a few bites chicken of chicken thigh. chicken thigh is delicious yeah oh it's delicious but chick <laughs> like chicken breast like you get yourself a big chicken breast that's probably close to a hundred grams of protein mm. no joke you like, <laughs> but it's sad the recommendations are like 80 grams of cooked chicken breast and i'm like i put this thing on the edge of a fork and i'm like what is this mm. it's like a chicken strip you know and then i'm like neither of us has had chicken for a long time. Yeah, that actually came up this morning in one of my dietetic consults. They were saying, they're like, I, I really don't like chicken. And that made me think, I'm like, oh, Jack and I haven't eaten chicken mm. for months. Yeah, I um, do like it, but like, it's mainly an ethical standpoint and an mm. environmental, like I'm just trying to, the only meat I'm having at the moment is kangaroo, which yeah. isn't farmed, so. Mm-hmm. But even kangaroo, like 100 grams of kangaroo has around 20 grams worth of protein. Mm. But I'm like, man, wouldn't mind a little bit more kangaroo. <laughs> anyway protein from meat man it's dense all right so just increase that portion size a little bit take one or two more mouthfuls you'll probably be much closer to your protein target ain't too Mm. tough yeah i mean the next question i wanted to talk about is more of a topic Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure if you ever get prompted by this from certain people but i've been hearing it a lot lately where you'll have a conversation with someone and they'll often like disclaim themselves where they say, oh, I know this is bad mm. or I know this food is bad. I know I shouldn't have done this, but so and so. And then you're like, what do you mean? Like that, that food isn't bad. Yeah. Like I, they'll say like, I had a Yopro. That was bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Or they, they'll ask like, what food should I be eating for weight loss? Some foods are better than others. Right. Yeah. And I just find that very interesting that people say that and it, it says a lot 
about their face value, their first impression in regards to nutrition and potentially mm-hmm. their their relationship with food needs a bit of work. Yeah, I actually did a consultation with someone last week and they were we were going through a dietary recall and they said, I know it's bad, I have some extra fruit at this time. Mm. And I'm like, if we're going to work together, you can never use the word bad and fruit in the same sentence, all right? <laughs> Obviously, I just said that as a joke, but... I know exactly what you mean. We do give foods labels mm. of good and bad, right and wrong. Yeah, totally. And I think it often, the more you do that, the more you'll let food dictate how you're feeling mm. and how what emotions you're experiencing. So like if, I don't know, like obviously there's less desirable things to happen. Like if you are on a weight loss diet and you're following a particular plan or you have set macros and you go over your macros by 100 grams of carbs, like obviously that's not the best thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And you might use the term bad, but that's very different to, I don't know, like having an extra piece of fruit at a meal and and calling that bad. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to just realign, like look at my day of eating, like everything is bad according to some people. I'm having cereal at breakfast, I'm having peanut butter, I'm having dark chocolate, (laughs) I'm having some other refined cup, I'm having jam. Like, I'm probably near my grave, according to some. (laughs) Definitely according to some. But then, according to others, you're doing everything exceptionally. Yeah. So, vocabulary, it really matters. And we really encourage people to try to steer away from giving their food labels, giving their diet labels, which trying to just reinforce you know certain ideologies and behaviors Mm. around food because then it it is a very slippery slope for going down that more orthorexic pathway yeah and it reminds me of all or nothing thinking Mm. where it's like i i don't know can you give give an example of all or nothing thinking yeah absolutely well when it comes to dieting that's usually when people unfortunately have episodes of overeating or even binge eating because Mm. You know, Monday to Friday, they might be right on point. They might be hitting their macros. They might be on their meal plan. But then let's say on Saturday morning, their partner springs on them like, hey, you know, I booked us a reservation at the cafe, right? Like, let's go out and get some eggs on toast. And you're like, oh God, eggs on toast. Like, that's not on my plan. But obviously you want to go out with your partner. And then you go out with your partner and you're like, oh, screw it. You know, I'm already not eating my oatmeal with protein i'm eating eggs on toast so i might as well order a milkshake as well and then maybe i'll order an almond croissant and then after that rather than just being like okay cool i had some breakfast then you're like oh screw it i've messed up for the whole day and then you go out to kfc for lunch and then you decide to go out to woolworths at night and you buy a big tub of ice cream and you go down the candy aisle and you fill up your shopping cart with all the candies you want you go home and then you make yourself a big sundae and then you lay on your back you're like oh god i feel so sick and this all started with eggs on toast Mm. so to me that's like all or nothing thinking You know, like it's either I'm on the plan or I'm off the plan. And if any little thing deviates me away from it, then doesn't matter to me. I've already messed up. But a really good way to actually think about this, guys, is let's say that you're driving down the road in your car and your car has four tires. Let's say that one of those tires goes flat. Would you get out of the car and throw a tantrum and be like, why is this tire flat? All the tires might as well be flat. And then you just start slashing the rest of the tires. Then you've got four flat tires. Or would you be like, okay, 
three of the tires still work one is flat how about i drive to the closest gas station try to find someone who can help me repair my car right like Mm. think about it like that just because one little thing has happened doesn't mean that the rest of the situation has to go absolutely haywire like there's always a way out it's it's going to be okay it's just literally a flat tire it's just a speed bump in the road okay you don't have to cause an earthquake and then fall into a big black hole hmm. yes <laughs> that's my answer to all or nothing thinking <laughs> been there done that it's absolutely awful but you can break through you know and it, mm. it is much much brighter on yeah. the other side i think you're correct i was also thinking about a different way of thinking <laughs> where, <laughs> where it was like Uh, I've had such a crap day today. I've had Mm -hmm. a really horrible day. When in fact, let's rephrase rephrase that by saying, I had a really great day up until the afternoon where I tripped over and and hurt my knee. Mm. Uh, So like, it's two different ways of of saying the same thing. But obviously the second option is a lot more positive. Yeah. Like, and I see that the way in in how people talk about their diets as well. Mm -hmm. Like I had such a bad day of eating because I had this one small chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had a wonderful day of eating. I incorporated lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and then I um, topped it off with some delicious chocolate at the end. And I feel amazing. Yeah. It's really, it certainly is about your perception of the entire situation and then Mm. how you vocalize that. And the exact same thing happens to me and that's why i really try to help people reframe their way of thinking especially when you do sign up with someone and it's in your first few weeks of coaching it is quite normal for them to just report on the things that they think they did poorly right Mm. they won't report on all the new pbs that they hit in the gym or every day that they hit their protein or their water intake or got eight hours sleep they'll be like oh man last friday night you know my friends came around and i drank one beer and then that's all they'll talk about for 10 minutes. And Mm. it's like, okay, but it's about what you do the majority of the time, not the minority. Like Mm. that was one little thing, you know, let's talk about all the great stuff that happened this last week and why your weight's still down and why you're looking even better in your progress photos. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there. This next question says, my back muscles grow so easily. Should I drop the weight that I use to reduce the muscularity of my back? I'm very jealous of this question asker. I was just going to say, Jack, hint of jealousy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, basically it sounds like this person has a muscle group that they can grow without too much effort. They would subjectively say on their behalf. But should they actually reduce the amount of weight they're lifting to reduce their rate of growth? I wouldn't necessarily say so because we know that muscle growth, it's not necessarily dictated by how much weight that you're lifting. It's more the number of working sets that you're doing. Well, it's a combination of both. Definitely, It's a combination of a buttload of things. I would say if you're doing adequate volume, then our mechanical tension is a better indicator of of muscle growth, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But... What I would recommend for this person is not necessarily to lift less weight, but I would just recommend that they actually reduce their weekly set volume and they actually put this muscle group, quote unquote, 
on the back burner so that they can then prioritize other muscle groups and mm. they can actually dedicate more time and weekly sets to those muscle groups to actually bring them up and develop those. So we know that general guidelines are to perform 10 to 20 working sets per muscle group per week. And generally it's recommended that you do hit a muscle group with a at least bi-weekly frequency. However, there is some new evidence that has come out saying that perhaps bro splits weren't that bad all along. And it really just does come down to perhaps how intensely you are training across the week and your total weekly set volume. And maybe you actually can distribute that however you like. And maybe that actually might have the same relative growth compared to actually hitting a muscle group twice per week. Very interesting in that realm, eh? It's kind of just mm. going back and forth. Yeah, it is. I think it's the... Just like nutrition, your weekly intake of something matters the most. Mm. Like the Australian dietary guidelines are based off a week's intake. And it seems like with resistance training that it's the same. Like it's total weekly sets. It's like just looking at something on a day-to-day -day basis will never be as beneficial as looking at it on a week. Mm -hmm. A weekly average. Same with body weight as well and gaining, losing, yeah. etc. But then obviously you have to tear that apart because you can say, okay, sure, you could train your quads once a week with 10 to 20 working sets per week. But let's say that you are doing more of a bro split and you are only training your quads once a week, 10 to 20 sets in a session. I would argue that after like the sixth to maybe eighth set, like what are you really getting out of your quads mm. after that? Like you're well, kind of- I only do eight quad sets a week. Yeah, I only do 15. Yeah. Well, <laughs> only 15? That's like double the double you. <laughs> so what, I only train quads once a week. I know. So yeah. technically you are doing a bro split. Mm, for quads. Yeah. yeah. But obviously we know that quads for you are more of your more favorable, more developed mm. muscle groups. And that ties in with this question. Yeah. Because your quads in this circumstance are her back. Mm. muscles in this circumstance yeah. so anyway what we're trying to say guys is don't lift less weight just reduce your weekly set and volume it's boring to lift less weight yeah i'd rather just not train than like that's why when i deload i don't i don't go to the gym anymore i just take some time off because like i find that lifting submaximally is very boring mm -hmm. yeah uh so what i would do in this circumstance is just drop your weekly set volume for your back below 10 sets mm. You might find that you might even just be able to get away with like maybe five or six sets. I yeah. know that's what I'm doing right now. For example, with my chest, like my chest is quite strong. My chest is quite developed in comparison to other body parts. And my chest is not an area that I'm trying to showcase on stage by any means. So I've actually reduced my direct chest training down to only six working sets per week so that I can allocate more volume to other muscle groups I want to bring up, like my quads, like my delts, like my glutes. Otherwise, if you put everything on 20 working sets per week, I would argue that you are really trending into junk volume territory there. I would question how effective are those sets actually for growth and how much are you actually getting out of them and how the heck are you recovering? Because there's a lot of muscle groups in the body and 20 sets per week, that is a lot of sets. Mm. Probably just not training with adequate intensity mm -hmm. or you just a uh, very good recovery capacity. Maybe you were very tight one fiber dominant. I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah. Well, that would, I definitely resonate with that and I would do the same thing. I'll probably bring your back sets down to five or six per week. And considering that my quads are still growing on eight sets per week, 
I, to be honest, your back will probably gr- still grow at five to six sets, especially mm. if you train with good execution, good intensity. Obviously, it's going to be a bit slower though, which is exactly what you want. And then you can prioritize some extra volume towards your lacking muscle groups if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. How many sets of back are you doing right now per week? Do you know? It would be about 15 to 20 at the moment. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll wrap this up with one thing that we learned this week. What did you learn, Tiara? Okay. Well, I actually learned something this week about anatomy from the Flex Success podcast. They interviewed Luke Hoffman from the Muscle Mentors, and they were talking about biomechanics and a whole bunch of different stuff. But Dean was actually said that apparently there is a fifth quad on some people we have to take into account quad muscle yeah a fifth quad and how interesting is that because they're called the quadriceps so quad means four mm. but does that mean it's like a pentasaurus pe- rex <laughs> i reckon you're a pentasaurus rex like when you get freaking lean okay and i'd say lean bodybuilders are the closest thing we have to walking cadavers with a Not heartbeat walking t-rexes no <laughs> no um but i reckon you have a pentasaurus quad uh, mm. a pentriceps pentricep yeah yeah but he was, he was talking about how some people might actually have a fifth quad they say where of, like was it lateral medial oh, i'll have to look it up on the internet but no they just said how some people actually are born with a fifth quad muscle and it's not it's, a, it's not a huge one fastest lateralis rectus femoris fastest medialis and sartorius is that right <laughs> no not not the sartorius uh no you've got the please don't laugh at my mistake i'm sorry what did you get in anatomy again <laughs> <laughs> i didn't do as well as you that's for sure <laughs> well you've got the rectus femoris and then the vastus medialis the vastus intermedius and the vastus lateralis you just said lateralis twice. No. So you've got the rectus femoris, the vastus medialis, the vastus intermedius, and the vastus lateralis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then the sartorius. I thought the sartorius was like the longest muscle in the body. It is. Yeah. So it runs along from like your hip down to your knee, mm. but I, it's not part of your quads because well, quadriceps. What, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's somewhere on the thigh. <laughs> Dude, we got to go back to 2015 anatomy cadavers. Mm. Anyway, that's kind of what I learned. Well, I can remember about that is the smell. Yeah, it does. It does stink down there. That's for sure. Um, But yeah, that's what I learned. We just have to take that into account that everyone is put together a little bit differently, right? Well, that's very differently. Having a whole different muscle in the body, a fifth quad. I reckon you do. Like when you get lean, like, and you tense your quads, it goes like... Mm. like kind of like someone like you know sticking out all their teeth or something like it's so cool like lean bodybuilders with nice quads it's wild but we have to find out obviously which one yeah but yeah i just we just have to take that into account that um but yeah that would be a genetic advantage oh yeah it would be mm-hmm. and from a strength but anyway something that i learned is that some beef jerky products still have dietary iron mm. which is quite interesting like i would have thought that dietary iron would be definitely diminished throughout the jerking process or the dehydration process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it could like beef jerky could be a valid option for people who uh, aren't a big fan of red meat in their meals, but potentially still want to have a protein source and still up their dietary iron without supplementation. And I would usually advocate for the beef jerky products that aren't 
uh, don't use nitrates or phosphates. Mm -hmm. So they're quite natural, so to speak. Yeah. If you want the most natural jerky, you'd have to get moose or duck or deer jerky uh, from Canada. Not beef. From the Nelson household. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've had it firsthand. It's very good. Oh, it's beyond good. It's mm. so freaking good. Nitrate free, brother. Yeah. Full of iron. That's interesting. Like iron, that, that is an interesting point. Like I don't think cooking might degrade iron a little bit. It seems like cooking degrades for flipping everything, eh? Add a bit of heat. See you later. But iron, it's not fat soluble. Is it water soluble then? We should know this. We should know this. Yes. We don't know this. We need to know this. <laughs> We're going to look this up. But anyway, hopefully we can report back on that in the future. But anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD. If you're feeling nice, please feel free to leave us a review on the iTunes podcast app or wherever you're listening. Leave us a five star, write us something friendly, and we'll catch you next week.